Good morning. It's great to see everybody here this morning. Um, so today we're going to be breaking bread and uh, spending some time just uh, really encouraging each another. Um, and we're going to start a new teaching series as well today. Um, so uh, it's called Fuel Your Devotion, Six Fantastic Practices. So some of you will know and will know the stories. In fact, I'm going to repeat myself a little bit today from things we've talked about over the past few months. But some of you will know uh, that I uh, was born with a speech impediment. And um, I first realized this was a problem when I was about seven or eight years old. I think you know, some of you, I got expelled from my first school when I was uh, little. Uh, so I never got fixed. Um, but I never realized it was a problem until I was about eight years old, maybe nine years old. And when I was eight or nine years old, I won a competition at school. It's probably the only thing I've ever won. Uh, we had an essay writing competition when I was about seven years old, and I won the competition, which gave the school a huge problem, because my school, uh, at those times, back in the late 40s, well, okay, 60s, a long, long time ago, were pretty strict about things. I remember my brother, who was left-handed, being hit by a teacher for using his le the fork in his left hand and his knife in the... No, that would be right, wouldn't it? His knife in his left hand and his fork in the right hand. Um, so when I won the competition, my teacher was really concerned because I couldn't say certain words. So I, I've had to practice a lot. So um, I couldn't, for instance, say uh, TH. So I couldn't say mother, I could only say mother with two Vs, like mother, like that, and father. And it sounded very Mancunian and not very posh and not very good. And at my school was trying to project a better image. So uh, the teacher said to me, Paul, we've got to fix this. We've got to fix you here and now. So she spent about 30 minutes with me trying to get me to say the word mother because it was in my essay and I couldn't do it. So eventually she took me all the way up to the headmaster and I spent time in the office of my headmaster or the principal who was trying to get me to say the word mother with a th and you know that thing where you see it on tv he actually did it with me where you, you break it down into sections so he went say m i went m say the i went the he said say uh uh okay so m m the the uh uh mother mother it was really, I just could not do the whole thing, you know. So the way they came up with it at the end was they stood me on stage and all the parents came into school and their answer was this, that they introduced me like this. They said, well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, uh, this is Paul and Paul won the competition. So he gets to read his essay to you about finding treasure underwater. Um, but unfortunately, Paul can't speak properly. And we just want to let you know that Paul's standard of speech is not what we expect at Crumsall Lane Primary School. It was the worst, <laughs> it was the worst, I was, I was eight, it didn't bother me. It was the worst introduction, because I won a prize, I got some sweets or something. Um, but it was the worst introduction I've ever had in my life. And I realized then that what, what I was going to try and do, which was public speaking in that moment, eight years old, was not going to be easy. And I've not found it easy ever since. And it's been a discipline for me, uh, even coming to America was a real discipline for me. Partly understanding you, which is easier than understanding me. I remember uh, when, I, when I started at a youth uh, ministry and some girl came up to me and she said, hi, uh, I'm whatever her name was, uh, and I'm, I'm Sikh. Um, and I went, oh, oh, right, okay. So I'm thinking, okay, what do I know about the Sikh religion? And I'm thinking, I'm gonna go home, I'm gonna work out, maybe inject some stuff about the Sikh religion. 
you know, what Christianity says, insulin messages. And then I went to shake her hand and said, thank you. She went, no, 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 I'm sick, I'm ill. Oh, she was poorly, I told him, so I know you have a problem with me, but sometimes I have a problem with you as well. So I realized I had to work on this, even coming here, and um, when we look at is this idea of six practices, six disciplines. So we're going to open our Bibles, and we're going to look at Acts chapter 2. Uh, again, I'm going to repeat things. If you've been coming for a few months, there's a couple of things I'm going to repeat just to prepare us for this series that we're going to be doing. So it says this in Acts 2. Um, later on in the passage, it says this. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000, sorry, uh, yeah, 3,000 were added to that number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So I actually mentioned this passage a few weeks ago, and I mentioned that what's in this passage, the key to this amazing thing when the church was born, and people were selling their possessions, and people, what the church was just exploding in growth, the key lies in three little words. The three words are, they devoted themselves. Nobody was devoted for them. They devoted themselves. And I told the story when I mentioned this of a pastor who became a pub landlord uh, in Manchester. And when someone asked him, why have you become a pub landlord? He said, because it's a lot easier than being a pastor. He said, because my customers are devoted all by themselves. In fact, I have to ring a bell to get rid of them at night. And what we're going to look at over the next few weeks is how can we fuel that kind of devotion? How can we fuel the devotion so we can have the relationship that we want with God. Because if you're like me, I have that, that, um, that desire to get closer to God. And, and Bob was talking about this morning. But I can't get you guys to make that happen in my life. I have to be devoted all by myself. And sometimes what happens is we come to church and we hope church is the place that's going to do it for us. But actually, the Word of God teaches, again, I'm going to repeat myself from last week, the church uh, is the place we come to give our worship, to give encouragement, to give uh, what resources we have to the rest of the body. It's not actually the primary place we come to get. That happens in our private devotions when we're devoted all by ourselves. So over the next few weeks, we're going to look at three questions Three questions, different subjects on each practice to figure out how can we be devoted. And the first question is this. What do I desire? What is it that you desire? If you were to close your eyes and imagine the relationship you want with God, what would that look like? For some of you, it might be, I just want to know he's real. For some of you, it may be, I, just, I, I know God, I know the rules, but I don't feel like I'm in love with God. What would that be? 
I love the picture painted here in Acts 2, 43, 44, and 47. I've just put them together. Everyone was filled with awe. Everybody was amazed at what God was doing. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I would love that in Viridian and North Arlington if we were just blown away by the stories of what God was doing. I would, I would be so excited by that. All the believers were together. They had unity. They had everything in common. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's a wonderful thought. I love that idea that church grows. And as the church grows, it has a greater impact. And one of the things we need to understand is that if we're going to be devoted all by ourselves, that's not going to happen by just looking at the rules and the regulations and the things we need to do. We need to paint a picture for ourselves of where we're going. Uh, many years ago, I was part of an organization, and the leader of the organization said, we're going to go away for a weekend to talk about the vision of our organization. So we went away for the weekend, and I was pretty excited. And uh, the vision basically was three words. Uh, I'm going to make them up, but the three words were something like go, grow, and give. And um, by the end of the weekend, I wasn't particularly inspired. Nobody was particularly inspired. And even though what was said about these three words was good, nobody was really motivated, and, and the leader was a bit frustrated with us, and I was kind of frustrated as well. And it was only in the car on the way home I realized what the problem was. So in England, when you pass a driving test, or when you take a driving test, you have to remember three words. Mirror, signal, maneuver. They're the three words you have to remember. And as you're driving, you have to remember uh, mirror, signal, maneuver. So it's imagine, imagine um, somebody drives up to your house uh, this afternoon and says, hey, uh, we're going to go to um, California, and uh, we're going to go to San Diego, and I want you to drive, I want you to drive with me to get us there. And you go, oh, that'd be fantastic. So, okay, uh, where do I go? And he says to you, well, mirror, signal, maneuver. And you think, oh, yeah, okay, um, mirror, signal, maneuver. Right, got that. Where do we go? And he looks at you and says, no, no, I, I told you. Mirror, signal, maneuver. Yeah, yeah, but where we're going? Mirror, signal, maneuver. That's not the way you paint a picture, is it? They're just the things you do. If I was trying to get you to go to California, I would say, hey, let me just paint you a picture of California. Okay, imagine the perfect weather. Imagine blue seas. Imagine sailboats. Imagine surfing with dolphins. I've surfed with dolphins in Southern California. Do you want to come and surf with the dolphins with me in Southern California? I'd paint a picture. Now, I might say to you now, it's going to take us eight hours to get out of Texas, and you feel like you're going to get nowhere at all. And then it's going to be red hot through Arizona. And then we're going to go up and down some mountains. There's going to be lots of ups and downs. It's going to get red hot. You're going to feel like you can go nowhere. But at some point, you're going to get over a mountain and you're suddenly going to see the blue ocean, the sailboats, the beautiful weather. Come and surf with the dolphins with me. That's the way you share vision, isn't it? You pay a picture. That's the way Jesus shared vision. Some of you are thinking, let's just leave right now and go to California. I can see you thinking it. <laughs> that's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't come with loads of rules and regulations. What Jesus did was he painted a picture of the kingdom of heaven. The question is, do you have that, do you have that image in your head? Because to be devoted all by yourself, you need to have that vision that you get with God of what your relationship with him could be like. And um, for me, uh, I, my vision is to help spark a movement. I, I'm, my vision is to do something worldwide. Last week, I talked about uh, the fact that uh, 
we're going to be working in Uganda soon. And uh, last week, I uh, told you about the ambassador to uh, the UK that we were going to partner with and was going to help us put our teams, our missionaries into Uganda. This week, I found out something really amazing. I'd forgotten that one of the churches we partner with in Canada uh, already has access to the government in Uganda. In fact, a friend of mine is meeting the president in a couple of weeks' time. And they're going to talk to the president about how do you disciple a nation? How would we disciple Uganda? Because one of the problems in Uganda I mentioned is that 60% of the population are Christians, but it's not affecting, it's not affecting the way of life yet. There's still lots of poverty. It's still the developing world. There's a disconnect between the fact that 60% of people are Christians, and yet it's a very, very poor nation relative to maybe the States or the UK. So... I'm going to get the chance, because what I've told this week, they said, we're going to talk to the Ugandan president. We're going to talk about how to disciple a nation. He's looking at how, how he can bring in uh, heaven to such earth in Uganda. And if we get the opportunity, Paul, we want you to teach us how to do that. And I'm thinking, wow, that's kind of cool for me, because that's been my vision. It's 30 years ago when I kind of came into full-time ministry, and 30 years later, I'm beginning to see some of the fruit of that. So to persevere... You need to have some kind of image, not just the rules and guidelines of what our relationship will be. And we have to remember that we can pursue anything we want. You, you don't need God to be happy. You don't need God for, I know I've said this before, you don't need God for that special relationship. You don't need God for that, that really good lifestyle. You just have to remember that when God gives you something, he has to maintain it. And he promises to maintain it. When you go and get it yourself and you make it happen, you have to maintain it. You have to maintain that relationship. You have to maintain that lifestyle. And so as we have that image, as we have that vision, we have to make sure it's a vision that God gives us. Because if God gives us a vision and we're partnering with him, the things he gives us, he maintains. And the peace of God will fill our hearts and fill our lives. It's a wonderful thing. So first of all, we have to, uh, have to ask the question, what do I desire? And as we grow and move towards spiritual maturity, that's the first question. The second question we're going to be looking at over this series is, what must I deny? Here's the tricky bit. What must I deny? We, we read this wonderful story in Acts 2, but it has this kind of slight awkward sentence in it. I'm going to read the, the awkward sentence to us. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. It's difficult. And this is the difficult thing about the series is to get what God has for us, we're going to have to create the space. There's that old analogy I'm sure you've heard about how you trap a monkey. You heard that? I think it's you put a banana in a jug uh, with a very tight hole at the top of the jug, and apparently this is what they do, a, a, a monkey will put his hand in, grab hold of the banana or the orange or the piece of fruit, but won't be able to get out. It's a very heavy jug, and it stops, and they come and hit it with a bat, apparently, and kill it. Sorry about that, Becky, but that's what they do. All the, all the monkey really needs to do is let go to be able to pull his hand out and escape, but he just can't. And for some of us, we're so busy, God can't get in, and he won't force his way in, He's looking for us to create space in our lives so that he can come in and he can help us in that incredible way. For me and Lynn, uh, the thing we had to uh, deny, if you like, when we first started to kind of recruit missionaries was we made uh, what we do free. So most other 
organizations that did what we did, charged people for the training and did all sorts of different things, and we didn't, and that was difficult. I remember one day, I remember opening the, the uh, cupboard one day and literally was no food in there because we were just kind of living by faith. People just gave offerings and stuff, and we're not in that situation anymore, but I remember there, was no, there, was not, there wasn't any food to make a natural meal. And I remember turning to Lynn, she told me one of the best lessons that anybody's ever taught to her. And I said, are you okay us living like this? Are you okay with the church giving us so little money? This is back in the 80s. And Lynn said this to me, I don't mind what the church gives us as long as I know they're simply doing their best. And what she taught me was that I'm not entitled to anything. I'm not entitled to anything. It's my choice. And if you want to pursue the kingdom of God, it's your choice. It's a wonderful thing to attain the peace of God. But it's your choice. We're not entitled to anything. We have to choose to deny ourselves, to create space for things that God has for us. Um, the playwright uh, Sidney Coe Howard said this, One half of getting to know what you want is knowing what you have to let go of in order to get it. So later on, the Gentiles came to Lord, and these guys sold more than just property. What they realize is that to grow in maturity, our rights become less. If you look at that real simple diagram, it's not my idea, this diagram. It's a, a diagram by a guy called John Maxwell. As we grow in maturity, our rights diminish. Our rights diminish. Um, now, this is something we have mentioned before, and I want to read this to you because it connects to um, breaking of bread, as you'll see in a minute. So in Acts 15, verse 28 to 29, feel free to follow with me. Acts 15, 28 to 29, it says this. Um, the Gentiles have become Christians. So the Jews, the Jews were starting to follow the Messiah. And then suddenly the Gentiles, the, the pagans, if you like, they started to convert as well. And there was a problem, a bit like my school had. Well, you've got all these Gentiles coming. And, and normally the Gentiles and the Jews don't really mix. And yet now they're under one Godhead, how does that all, all work? So they went to decide, what do we say to these Gentiles? What do we say to them about serving God? And this is what we read here. It says, they went away and they prayed, and then they came back and they said, this is the apostles, they said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood and the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You'll do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Which is like not a lot of information. So there's two strange things about that which I won't get you to think about. Let me just tell you what they are. First of all, it doesn't mention any of the other commandments. So they're okay. Does that mean they're okay to murder? Well, they just have to obey the food laws. Does that mean they're okay to commit adultery? They just have to obey the food laws? No. So uh, the Jews had 16, 613 commandments that they had to adhere to. But they believed that the Gentiles could have a place in heaven without becoming Jews. So most Christians, when I say to them, what do you think the Jews of Jesus' day believed about whether the Gentiles could go to heaven or not? Most Christians say, oh, the Jews didn't think the Gentiles could go to heaven. That's just not true. They did. Uh, they believed they could have a place in the world to come if they adhered to, if they obeyed the seven what are called Noahide laws, which is basically a slightly condensed version of the Ten Commandments. So that's why they didn't need to say to them about all those other things because that already existed. It was, it was, it was a given. They didn't need to say that. 
So they go away and they pray, and they say, obviously, they have to, they have to obey you know, the Ten Commandments. But also, we're now going to ask them, because the Holy Spirit is saying to us, so we feel like we're going to ask them to obey the, the food laws. Now, what's odd about that is that Jesus, or the, the Spirit of God, had just told them they didn't have to do that. So, earlier on in the story, Peter and others have been clearly told you don't have to obey the food laws. And now, later on, it seems like God's changing his mind. So God's now saying to him, actually, you do have to obey the food laws. So the question is, why? Why? And the answer is really, really simple. They had to do it so they could have fellowship and break bread together. Because the Jews wouldn't be able to fellowship with the Gentiles if the Gentiles broke those food laws. In other words, the Gentile Christians had to give up their rights in order to have fellowship. They, they were entitled to eat whatever they wanted to do, but they chose, for the sake of this bigger picture, to give up their rights. And for us to, to really grab hold of all that God has for us, sometimes we have to give up our rights. And sometimes that can be just really practical. There's a lovely story of a guy called um, Reverend Tom Erickson. And uh, he was a pastor uh, many, many years ago. And in his little town, the library had this thing called Dial a Tale. And little children who were parentless or didn't have a dad could phone this number and um, someone from the library would read them a bedtime story. Because a lot of them didn't have parents, so they would be able to read. But there was a, a problem with the phone number, because obviously little kids sometimes get it wrong. And uh, if they got it slightly wrong, a, a similar number apart from one digit was this pastor. So a couple of times a week, you know, late at night or, you know, kind of tea time when he's about to have tea, he would get a phone call from a little child. So he initially tried to explain to like five-year-olds what a wrong number is. And he eventually thought, well, no. So he went to the library, got some books like Three Little Pigs, and every time a child called him, no matter what time of the day it was, no matter what he was doing, he'd stop and he'd read them a bedtime story. He gave up his rights in order to bless those children. So it can mean anything to us. But as you have that picture of what it is, you have to ask the question, what are the rights that we need to give up? And then thirdly, we're going to be looking at this. What must I devote myself to? So we've got different speakers are going to be doing this. Bob's going to be speaking. Uh, we've got Mike's going to be speaking, a.k.a., as he calls himself, Chocolate Thunder, which we're excited about. Mike's going to be speaking. Um, Mark's going to be speaking. Dave Butler's going to be speaking. I think um, there may be others are speaking. So we're going, to other, we're going to look at the kind of things, the six fantastic practices that will get us or help to get us where we want to go. Um, so as we grow... Our rights become less and our responsibilities become greater. Well, that's what I've found. As I've, as I've tried to be a better leader, I've found I have to give up my rights and I have to take on more responsibilities. What's helped me was a poem that was written by John Scott. Let me, let me read this poem because it starts to lead into one of the practices is breaking of bread. And breaking of bread is a practice if you do it correctly, and I'll explain why. Let me just read this poem to you. It's called A Poem to Ministers. It says this. People are illogical, unreasonable, and self-centered. 
love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you are successful, you will win friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. The biggest men with the biggest ideas can be shot down by the smallest men with the smallest minds. Think big anyway. People favor underdogs but follow only top dogs. Fight for a few underdogs anyway. People really need help but may attack you if you try to help them. Help them anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. Uh, the Word of God says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then later on in the same passage, it says every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. It's really the only thing they say twice, really emphasizing they broke bread. What is, what's so special about breaking bread? And why is it something that we practice? What is it? It's because when we practice breaking bread, there's, there's part of breaking bread that's really important. And I read this again a few weeks ago. Let me read it to you. It's from the minister's handbook, uh, sorry, handbook? Minister's handbook uh, that existed uh, in the early church called the Didash. It says this, Gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving after confessing your sins that your sacrifice may be pure. And this is key. And this is part of the practice. It's the thing we're going to do today I'm going to encourage you to do. But let no one who is at odds with his fellow, come together with you until they be reconciled, that your sacrifice may not be profaned. In other words, the early church practiced this, and it is a practice, that when they came to break bread, they would say, you can break bread, but if you, if you have a dispute with your brother and sister, if you hold something in your heart against your brother and sister, whatever you do, put it right first. Put it right first. It says this in the word of God. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself. So again, devote yourself. Not somebody else. Somebody else isn't going to examine you. Nobody's going to judge you. Examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup, Without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. Uh, my pastor, um, still considers me my pastor, the pastor who kind of from 14-year-old pastored me, uh, was sick for a lot, lot of his ministry. Uh, he had a really bad stomach ulcer, and uh, he had it for, for years, this, and it, was, it made him very, very ill. Um, he was from Northern Ireland and he had various challenges in his life. He led the only Protestant uh, church in a fiercely Catholic area during the Troubles. 
But the biggest challenge he had, he would say, was to forgive his mother. His mother uh, was an alcoholic, and his mother had not been a great mother to him at all. And he'd grown up, uh, even to his adult life, just holding resentment and unforgiveness towards her. Uh, one day, God really challenged him about this. And he would testify, if you talk to him, that the day he forgave his mother, or the week he forgave his mother, he's also disappeared. Uh, and some of us already know that there's a connection between our emotions and our spiritual life and our physical being. Uh, and I want to encourage you, uh, one of the practices, one of the fantastic practices that we can do is when we have breaking the bread, which is not every week here, but every so often, it's a great opportunity for you to put things right in your heart. Now, sometimes you can't do that here and now, can you? It might take a phone call. It might take a meeting. It might take a text. It might take a conversation. It might take you getting on your knees and just asking God for strength. I often say this to people. Forgiving someone is not saying that what they did was okay. When God forgave you, he wasn't saying oh, what you did was okay. He's just saying what you did was bad, but I'm forgiving you. And he asked us to do the same. And so this morning, as we break bread, we're going to begin one of these practices. For some of us, it's going to help us get where we want to be with the Lord, that relationship. For some of us, right now, this is going to be a denial. This is going to be a denial. For, you're going to have to deny the desire to hold on to something, uh, anger, frustration, bitterness. Um, for some of you, it might be denying because it might be just awkward. Never, you know, Because we're going to stand up, we're going to walk somewhere, somebody's going to pray for us, we're going to walk back. Maybe you, you don't like people looking at you. It might be denial in that sense. But as we sacrifice, wherever those things are, as we make those denials, God comes in and he comes with us and he helps us and he gives us strength and he leads us towards the thing that we have. And so this morning, I just want to encourage you as we break bread, let's start one of these practices, but let's do it with the real understanding of God's intention for breaking bread. Uh, um, God's already forgiven our sins. If you've asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins and you've changed and you've decided to make him Lord of your life, this, this thing does not take away your sins. He's already done that. But what we're doing now is we're remembering what he's done for us. And we're also saying because you've forgiven us, we will forgive others. Because you've showed us grace, we will show others grace. And breaking of a bread is the practice to do that. And it, it builds that habit in our lives, which is a great and godly habit. So let's just close our eyes. We're going we're gonna to pray, and, and Ryan's going to lead us in some more worship, and we're going to guide you through this and explain how this works. I think, first of all, just while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I just want to um, give people that opportunity. You know, maybe there's um, someone in this room, even this morning, and you've never... Ask God to forgive you for your sins. Because we have to recognize we've all done wrong. But Jesus died on the cross to take those sins away so that we can have a great relationship with God. So maybe this morning there's someone who wants to say to God, God, just forgive me my sin and help me to follow you so that you, I will acknowledge you as my God and my Lord and my Savior. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk us through that prayer. And if, if that's you and this morning you want to say that, I'm going to give you the words to repeat. So you can say these in your heart or you can say them out loud. 
So if this, that's your situation, you want to make that commitment to God this morning, let me, just, let me just say those words. And you can say them in your heart and just say amen at the end. Amen means I agree. Lord, I acknowledge that I have sinned against you and I have sinned against others. I accept that you died on the cross in place of my punishment and I ask for forgiveness. Please forgive me my sins and I commit to following you and making you my God, my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Amen. If you uh, said that prayer, maybe for the first time or because you want to get yourself right with God, I would love it if you came to see me or maybe came to see uh, my wife Lynn or Bob who was on the stage or Ryan and we'd love to talk to you and just pray with you about that. But for now, let's stand. We're going to worship a little bit more and I'm going to come back and lead us through the breaking of bread in, in a few moments.